0: targeting neighborhoods including Sunnyside, Gulfton, and Galena Park. The program could launch as early as this fall. In a news conference Tuesday afternoon, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner announced his administration had reached a three-year deal with the Justice Department after settling a probe into whether the city violated the Civil Rights Act. The actions in question related to the city's system of not responding to illegal dumping calls coming from predominantly Black and Latino neighborhoods. Residents in Trinity Gardens complained to the city for years about the illegal dumping occurring in their area with little to no action taken in response. The settlement comes after Mayor Turner announced a $17.8 million plan in March to crack down on the illegal dump sites. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to KPFT.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in for KPFT News. I'm Elise Bench. Hey y'all, it's Susan Darrow, your host
1: of Border Radio, right here on KPFT. I hope you'll join me for Border Radio Monday through Friday mornings from 9.30 to noon on KPFT Houston.
2: I sit here alone and I wonder why
3: Welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT Pacifica Radio. Bob Sanborn here with Claire. How's it going, D-tray. Claire? Claire. Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted me to finish that. <laughs> <Claire laughs> Trey, of course.
0: It is How good. are you doing today, Claire? It is good. It is National Running Day. So I'm it? excited. It is. It wow. Is. I know. We should have went on a staff 5K in the morning.
3: So like running legs, running nose, running legs. I, mean, <laughs> I guess that's right.
0: Running everything. National
3: Running Day. <laughs> do uh, So welcome to Growing Up in America. This is a production of Children at Risk. The Voice for the Children of Texas, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research and public policy. And every week we fill this same 60 Minutes with lively discussion on our children. And uh, what do we got going today, Claire? We have quite a few things. We're into the teaser second,
0: but some of the guests we have, we have pediatrician Lynn Lee, we have Jamie Sanciel, Assistant Director of Early Head Start Child Care Partnerships with the Harris County Department of Education, who've been very helpful with mm. coming on the radio recently. Thank you H-C-D-E. Samuel Walker with Medicaid Marketing Manager of Amerigroup. That was flipped. That's okay. And then Dr. Angelo Giordano. Giardino. Giardino, thank you so much.
3: We love Dr. Giardino.
0: (laughs) He is, it seems, a master of all traits, but most importantly, direct or chair of the Department of Pediatrics in Utah.
3: And the chief medical officer there at Primary uh, Children's Hospital, which is a big deal. And yeah. so we're going to talk it, with him about transgender care. Yeah. There are a lot of myths in the whole world around ta- transgender and gender gender-affirming affirming. care. And so uh, Dr. Giardino is here to uh, set us straight on some of those. Thumbs up, thumbs down today is year-round school. And the uh, data of the day today, 30%. It's 30%. What are, you, what are you guessing that is?
0: I... So I cheated accidentally uh, I yeah. read the back and it said star. So I know it has something to do with star. I'm gonna say 30 see it's too low, but it's not high enough So 30, I'm gonna guess 30 go
3: percent are doing well on star I would like and, to
0: say 30 percent are almost there because 70 percent have mastered.
3: Oh, <laughs> and I, that's, I'm staying optimistic. That's very optimistic, <laughs> right? Very good. But well, but you know what? Teachers are working hard. But we're coming yeah, out but, of this pandemic, and so that's yeah, one of the things. And the that star I'm changes. About. I yeah. think you might
0: be more on the mark on that one.
3: I think. Uh, but anyway, it should be a good show. A lot of great guests. Claire Dutre, of course, is always great. And so, um, uh, so let's go ahead and uh, let's go with uh,
0: thumbs up, thumbs down.
4: All right,
3: right, vámonos. Uh, so year round school, Claire. So this is yeah. a thing. You know, as uh, just a few little data points here, when we look at school days in America, school days in Texas, I think we're at about 170 over the course of a year, 170 school days. Uh, When we compare this to the rest of the world, uh, on the other end, you're going to have South Korea at about 230 school days per year. So. You know, that's a lot, a more. lot yeah. more. And when you think of weeks as being five school days, that's a lot more weeks. And even Germany is about at about 200. So that's, uh, uh, you know, six more weeks than what we're going to school. And right. so there's been a movement over the years to sort of have year-long schooling. And not necessarily more school days, but spread it out so that right. you don't get that summer learning lag that you and I are very familiar with kids forgetting stuff. This is especially true uh, in the 65% of families that are low-income families in the state of Texas, where right. there's just this big catch-up game going on in the fall. So what do you think about this idea of year-round year schooling? Yeah. Because it's sort of anti-cultural, you know, the way <laughs> yeah. our, our culture is. I feel is. like you
0: have somewhere. It's what you look forward to. Um, I, I was help brain or helping to brainstorm pros and cons and then had my own mind flipping back and forth and back and forth. Because yeah. like you said, the excessive not excessive that's a big word but the learning loss that could happen in the yeah. summer if you're not intentional about it it is hard to to reteach in the first few months yeah. as a teacher and have to review that but there, there is benefits. Also, like you said, because it's spread out, you have longer mid breaks. So you, when you hit that point of exhaustion, it's not here's a three day weekend. Yeah. It's here's two and a half weeks to recalibrate. And it's nice for teachers thinking about when you're on the cusp of a new lesson, and you can reevaluate, truly assess, and then also take that time. My worry is, is it enough time for teachers and administrators to rest in that time to then prepare? Because then they're constantly having that preparation turnaround. And how long is the gap between a conclusion of a school year and the start of another um, to really register all the students? So I would be curious, because I'm sure there's systems already in place There's so how some, do they do you know
3: it? and and we've seen that sometimes parents really like the new system i think yeah. what's hard is when you have kids going when a school district tries it at different schools and you have one child in an elementary that's doing year-round schooling another child in a middle school that has a summer off it throws things off but by and large a lot of parents like the year-round school however yeah. i would say a lot of parents really hate it and part yeah. of it is because I was raised this way, and I'm—you know, this is. I a know, but thinking- I would say on
0: the flip side, for the equity piece um, the child care deserts you, the child care oh, yeah. piece it follows a true work calendar year round feeding children when
3: parents are if working if they could ra- if they they would rather send their kids to school rather than sort of search yeah. all over for a summer camp or for
0: yeah. daycare, care you know, afford summer camp or if the school sometimes is so overloaded with summer school they can't offer other summer programs yeah. I did see Fort Bend anyone at Fort Bend is doing like a summer PE mm-hmm. outside for students if you're interested i thought that was cool
3: that's sort of interesting but i think by and large a lot of families are used to summers off. kids are used to summers to working in the summer Uh, i do think we need to have a push for more school days which is never popular with students it wouldn't have been popular with me as a student (laughs) i'm a nerd maybe educators (laughs) i know i went through i love school i hate school phases but but i think we do need to have more time on task uh, in our country and we we haven't been doing that but I think it's it's a hard pill to swallow to go to year long school, yeah. even though you. Well, have it also pockets allows of support.
0: It allows for more differentiation because when you have more time, teachers aren't fit all of this for the star in four weeks, and when you can spread it out and have that time, it yeah. really helps yeah. with recess and adding more brain breaks into the lessons. Yeah.
3: There is a college. I'll I'll end with this. There's a college out in Colorado called Colorado College, okay. and there are <laughs> Shocking. Num- there are <laughs> a number of schools like this, but Colorado is maybe the most famous where they just do. A one class at a time, and they do it oh, like in yeah, three-week in increments. And so you're basically focusing all on one subject that. the whole time. And so there's probably things that we could be doing in American education like that. Uh, that are a little bit different. and sort of adjust to the different learning styles that different children have, right? Instead of doing the same thing of, you know, going to school 170 days, taking a long summer, forgetting a lot, starting all over again. Yeah, having two months
0: to review, et cetera, et cetera. So,
3: interesting stuff. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, If you'd like to contribute your discussion on thumbs up, thumbs down, 713-526- 5738. 713-526-5738, option two. And uh, we'll put you on the air. We'll listen to your opinion and and then claire will respond <laughs> that's saying. what claire does yes. <laughs> she is fantastic that claire dutre yeah, I'll, so. I'll
0: give my advice if anyone just has a, so, a thought they want to share
3: so uh next up uh we're gonna go to a uh, pediatrician but a little music before we go into it but lindley's coming up uh one of our pediatricians to talk a little bit <music> All right, on the line with us is Lynn Lee, a pediatrician, and uh, uh, one of two guests today to talk about gender-affirming care. Uh, Dr. Lee, how are you doing today?
5: I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very
3: much for being here. Uh, In Texas, right, we're going through this thing right now where... um, uh, and And many other states where people have been from my vantage point, I think there's been a lot of misinformation about gender affirming care from your perspective as a pediatrician, Lynn, what are you seeing as a regard in regards to gender affirming care?
5: Yes, so as a pediatrician, I mean we see kids all the time who are struggling with their identity with their gender identity. And we're also seeing, you know, a mental health crisis right now. Yeah. Um, and we know that kids, um, that trans youth have higher rates of suicidal ideation and attempts, um, as high as 50%. Um, and so it's, it's just so important that we support these kids. And we, we know that access to gender affirming care leads to better mental health outcomes. And so, you know, I just, <laughs> um, I just think more and more states are um, instituting bands um, that make it harder and harder for these kids to get the care they need. And, and, and it really is treatment and medicine, right. That they, that they're getting. Um,
3: Do, I Dr. Tilly, a lot of, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask specifically, you know, we're we're seeing a lot a lot of my friends who are pediatricians in texas are afraid to talk about this issue right because Mm -hmm. the government has been pretty tough and you know later on in the show we're we're talking with angela giardino who's the chief medical officer at the children's hospital in utah because we it's so hard for people in texas to talk Mm -hmm. about this but can for those that really want to know what does gender what is gender affirming care what does it mean Mm -hmm. when uh a child comes to the hospital, and why would they come and present as needing gender-affirming care?
5: Sure. Um, So essentially, we're treating gender dysphoria. So the idea that the sex that you're assigned at birth is not matching up to the uh, gender identity you have. So maybe uh, a child feels like they are female, but they were assigned male at birth. Um, and so in terms of gender affirming care, I think a lot of there's a lot of misinformation
2: yeah.
5: um, about, oh, well, it's surgery and it's, you know, surgery right away and we're mutilating these kids and yeah. then they regret it and all of that. And I and there's a lot more that goes into it than surgery. Right. Um there's a social affirm- affirmation, affirmation. Um, component where they're maybe using the pronouns they prefer maybe they're changing their name changing um the clothes they wear things like that i mean that that piece of it um comes before i would say the medical piece of it um and then a lot of them will get um essentially puberty blockers so um gonadotropin releasing hormone which just really delays puberty so that let's say your um a male and you identify as female you 're not going to go through puberty and get all the you know facial hair and all of these at Adam's apple and these changes right. that are going to make it very um uh, distressing to you uh later on in life, and so we're just delaying puberty and then it's when you're older um that you could actually get the hormone therapy. Which will give you those uh, characteristics that are more desirable, um you know breast development and yeah. um, more feminine features and things like that if if you are a, um a male transitioning to female um and throughout that whole process, I mean there's so much follow up, there are so many doctors' appointments, there's therapy, they try to involve you know family members. It is a really holistic experience um, they're looking at side effects and you know, there, it's a lot, a lot goes into it. And, um, the other thing that I think is important to mention is there's all this, uh, fear around surgery, but a lot of people who are trans may never get surgery. Right. And I think it's actually, um, three out of four never get any kind of top surgery, bottom surgery. And, you know, just, um, the, the hormones are enough for them to feel comfortable. Um,
3: and and, and you know. just to clarify, yeah. and and Dr. Lee, the, the percentage of children that are actually getting, the, getting surgery, it, it's practically nil, right? We're really waiting until kids are 18 uh, before the surgery happens. Exactly, yes,
5: yeah. exactly.
3: Yeah, I think that's important um, as well.
0: I think, too, and I know you wanted to mention SB14, which now is going into effect in September. What's worrisome is it's so beyond just the... We don't want the cost of X, Y, Z in our hospitals or past the hospitals. It's uh, like Dr. Bob mentioned, like you mentioned, pediatricians scared to even say the right thing or say the wrong thing um, as they're doing a checkup, regardless of what the checkups for what's happening. Um, So even outside of the hospitals, I know youth now are feeling under attack in general and scared to even go into open environments because of the Kind of culture war that this is stirring up. Lynn, how do you feel mm-hmm. in the pulse of hospitals and just medical general community across states in the nation or maybe in Texas um, as they try to navigate or as doctors try to navigate this new effect and while seeing patients that might still have questions and trying to answer them?
5: Right. Um, I, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of these clinics that we're providing care are closing. And, um, I think the last time I counted, there's about 17 states now with some type of ban, which means that, um, about a third of kids living in America who are trans are living in a state where they're restricted from getting access. And I, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, and then I think the other thing that's very interesting about Senate Bill 14 is, Um, there's already kids who are on hormone therapy, right? Mm So um, what are we going to do about those kids once um, once the ban goes into effect in September? And if you look at the language of the bill, it essentially is saying that we need to wean them off um, the medications, which is um, just entirely damaging. We we have a kid whose mental health has improved, who's finally feeling comfortable, who um, really... Is kind of living their best lives, and then we're taking that away from them. I mean, I think that we're just going to see uh, a huge spike in just um, issues around mental health, and we're already seeing so many um, so many numbers in the hospitals of suicides and and suicidal attempts and things like that. So, and um, and I think
3: one of the things that we're also seeing with this is that you know uh, affluent parents who have these kids, you know, I've talked to some of these, and they're just leaving the state, right? Because right, they want to take right, care of their right. kids. But what does that mean for that large percentage of kids that aren't coming Even from too- fluent family, right? I mean, these are kids that were basically, are, I'll ask you, Dr. Lee, are, are, are we not heightening their mental uh, illness problems in terms of being able to de- deny them what they should be getting?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem of inequity is huge. I mean, only those that can afford to go to a different state, um, those are the kids that are going to get what they need. Yeah. And then there's going to be all these kids that get left behind. And actually for Texas, um, I think uh the only states surrounding the closest ones would be Louisiana or New Mexico, because Arkansas and Oklahoma both have um, some sort of ban right now.
3: You. yeah i was I was um, looking at the this morning The New York Times had a big map in the printed New York Times. I'm a dinosaur <laughs> still, but they they showed maps of uh states that had uh you know bans or mm-hmm. laws against transgender kids. uh uh, really just two years ago 2021 uh, compared to now and there were no laws against transgender it's almost like this is the cultural wars have just come to us uh you know it's this this challenge for children existed two years ago but there were no laws against it and now Mm -hmm. we've decided to as some of our states as texas we've decided to say Uh, As politicians, we know more than doctors. We know more than scientists. uh, We know more than the research. And so we're going to make some laws uh, that just are coming across as just purely mean-spirited, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's the important thing. The final question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Lee, uh, is um, how is it affecting physicians in Texas? As a pediatrician... uh, Uh, you know, how is it impacting you guys and your colleagues uh, in Texas when you have to deal with this?
5: I mean, I think it's um, greatly impacting us, right? I think just even uh, the restriction of rights of physicians to just practice medicine (laughs)
2: um,
5: and to practice the medicine the way they want. And there are um, colleagues of mine who've gone into adolescent medicine, endocrine, because this is what they want to be doing is gender affirming care. And so now they don't really get to do what they've spent years and years and years going to school to learn how to do. Um, and we just we know that it's evidence based, medically necessary, life saving and every leading medical organization is. Um, strongly opposes any efforts to restrict care. So the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I mean, we're all on the same page that this is necessary and that doctors should be able to do this. And um, so I think it's just incredibly unfortunate that this has become such a big issue that people are are trying to um, take away from kids. Um, I also wanted to just end with a quick call to action that, um, you know, there's a new bill introduced to Congress that would criminalize the um, healthcare trains people need. Um, And the ACLU has a, you know, a, a quick, if you just Google ACLU and trans care, you can send a message to your Congress member um, to try to protect trans people from discrimination and um, super quick and easy. And, you know, it is Pride Month.
3: <laughs> yeah. um,
5: so I think we all need to just be doing a little bit more to try to protect these kids.
3: Dr. Lindley, Lee, pediatrician. Thank you so much, Lynn. And uh, thank you for the great work you do. And thanks for being on Growing Up in America today.
5: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. righty. Take care coming back around and i keep my side of the
2: street clean. you know what i mean is my
3: is yeah, this this issue of uh, gender affirming care is huge right i mean yeah. it's i'm glad we're talking about it later on in the program we're going to have a chief medical officer on uh, Dr. Giardino to talk a little bit more about this. But for me, this is, I, I as I go around the state and around the community and people talk to me about this issue, uh, there's just so much bad information. And so yeah. it's, I just want people to hear uh, what's going on. Uh, next up, we want to talk a little bit about uh, pre-K and some of the learning options there. With us uh, from the Harris County Department of Education is Jimmy Stansel. Uh, he's the Assistant Director of Early Head Start Child Care Partners. Jamise, how you doing today man i'm dr bob um how are you today very good very good Jamise. uh so uh James, tell us what's going on with uh, uh, with pre-k and some of the stuff that we're talking about here and what are you guys doing at the harris county department of education
6: Um, Well, you know, at Harris County Department of Ed, we do lots of things, pre-K being one of them. Um, The good thing is, is the nation is now focused on early childhood education. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of options now that weren't there before for pre-K. So you can have, you know, there's free options through the school districts or through charter schools or through Head Start, um, where, of course, with those options, you have to qualify based on some uh, set criteria, and then there's options that are tuition based, like childcare uh, facilities, private schools, um, and school districts too will offer a tuition based um, pre-K program.
0: Jimmy's like you said, there's not only so many options, but I know seats fill fast. So if I'm a parent with a little a little tater tot looking to get them <laughs> education, one, how soon should I should I be looking because of these lists? I know that's There's a wait list at some places. And then two, what exactly should I be looking for? How will I know what best suits my child? So I'm glad you asked
6: that. Um, Actually, pre-K, the wait lists start filling up in the Mm. spring. So well before the summer starts, people start um, looking at their options and getting on lists pretty quickly. The good thing is is there are a lot of lists to get on. Um, So your opportunities are greater for your child to get into a pre-K program. The first thing a a family needs to do is figure out what what – Their needs are. So you would be looking at, you know, do you need a program that has aftercare? Do you need a full-day program, a half-day program? Um, And then from there, you can narrow it down to see what option is available for you. Uh, if your child is three, you know, you have to see if there are pre-K options that are free that your child can have a uh, privy to. So, like, school districts will do three-year-olds, but typically after they enroll, four-year-olds. Um, your child care facilities, your private into, uh, institutions, they will enroll three-year-olds. Um, so you kind of have to weigh out what it is that you need um, and whether you need transportation services, because some places don't offer transportation services.
3: Hey, Jamise, I I wonder, on full-day pre-K for Mm -hmm. four-year-olds, we know that some school districts, uh, really we believe every school district should offer this, but we know that some are not doing it. But Houston ISD, for instance, does uh, full-day pre-K for four-year-olds. Are there districts that aren't doing enough in this in this regard? I mean across what if you're a parent who lives in Spring Branch, do you get that? If you're a parent who lives in Fort Bend, do you get that? How do we figure out which districts have it and which don't?
6: That's a good question. So there are websites that you could go to like uh K uh Houston.org. They will list, you can type in where you live by zip code, and then they will tell you all, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the pre-K options that are in your area. You can go to findchildcare.collabforchildren.org, um, uh, and same thing, they'll tell you all the childcare facilities that offer pre-K um, in your area, and they'll also tell you what you need to do for enrollment. Um, And then if you were interested in a Head Start program, you would do the Head Start locator. You could just type in Head Start locator and then they'll tell you all the Head Start programs that are around you. When you're trying to choose the different options, again, you have to, as a family, decide what is it that I want from my child. Um, Head Start's going to be different from a school, and a school's going to be different from a child care facility. Um, and so you have to figure out which one of those things meets your need. Head Start's going to offer a, a full day program that's comprehensive for the family. Same thing with the school districts. Um, some of them offer full day, some of them offer part day. Um, and then a child care facility, they're going to offer a full day of services, but what to look for in each of those things yeah. you need to look at. Like if it was a school district, you would look at the school rating, um, and you would go to texasschools.gov, and they'll tell you how the school is rated in a um, like a report card, A, B, C, D. Um, and then you would look at their star performance. For a child care facility or a Head Start, you would look at national whether or not they're nationally accredited um, if, they have, if they participate in Texas Rising Star, because that's going to tell you about the quality of services that they provide. The higher the star, the better the quality. Um, you're going to look at what curriculum do they use? What is the teacher-student um, ratio? So the, the good thing about a school district is they have a lot of slots, but their ratio is going to be higher. A Head Start program, the ratio is going to be lower. So, you know, you have to make decisions as a family.
0: Yeah, we probably should have started with this, but thinking of backtracking or backwards planning, why? what is the benefit of pre-K? If I'm a parent and I have all those options and I know my child could be ready for these environments, what would seeking out a pre-K specifically help my child development-wise, learning-wise, when entering kindergarten?
6: They're going to work on the foundational skills that children need when they enter school. So they're going to work on teaching a child what a schedule is, um, how to share, how to take turns. So those social skills that you need to survive in the world, uh, it's going to start at the, at the early childhood level, um, they'll teach them how to interact with one another, how to self-regulate their behavior. So it's normal for kids to get upset, but it's how we handle that. Um, that's acceptable in, in society. And so they're going to get those skills at a, fund, at a foundational level at the pre-K age. So you want your child to have those experiences and start developing relationships with adults and other children that are healthy early on. Very
3: good. So a lot of good stuff here. And, and one of the other interesting things, Jamise, is that when we do our research at Children's Risk and we do the rankings, what we find is that schools that have pre-K, those kids perform at much higher levels than schools that don't have uh, uh, availability of pre-K. So one of the things that we need to encourage parents is that, you know. You shouldn't be thinking about starting kids in kindergarten. They should be starting in pre-K because mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference for these oh, kids. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Jimmy Stansell is with the Harris County Department of Education with their Head Start program there. Jamise, thank you so very, very much for the work that you do and for all your team. And thanks for being on Growing Up in America today.
6: Oh, thanks for having me.
3: All righty. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT, Pacifica Radio. data from Beyonce right I know we can never get
0: rid of that song I will put my foot down <laughs> until Beyonce's on the radio show
3: oh Layla Layla Mazzali's with us Layla is oh, the she dra- was with us oh Layla's gone very good she's gonna and now we back.
0: actually have Beyonce I'm just kidding
3: <laughs> Beyonce's here in the studios with us <laughs> she flew in from her tour so, uh, uh there we go. Yeah, she she's coming. She's coming. That's the first Rico we we've heard. It. So, uh 30%. So 30% of uh students. We is this this is the number, right? 30% of 30%. students. We're trying to guess what this means, the 30% of students.
0: Well, you read of students. I think you know what it means.
3: <laughs> So, <laughs> but if anyone uh, wants to call in and it comes through to guess, thirty percent of students, and so um, I, I don't want to take Layla's thunder. I know we don't want to take. But what is her thunder? Give us a little bit of an idea what thirty percent um, well, means. I
0: could say you were correct. It is students passing. I don't know how much of her thunder to take of this star exam from 2022. So we have some star results, the most recent ones, not the ones this past year, but the year before.
3: And, and Layla's on the phone now. Layla, how are you doing? I
0: was winging it for you. Oh, appreciate that. I am (laughs) doing well. Sorry for all the technical difficulties.
3: Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. So Layla Mazzali is the director of the center for social measurement and evaluation. 30% tell us about 30% Layla. 30%.
7: So I mean, in true form, 30% is a little bit of an unhappy number. Um, Only 30% of students from economically disadvantaged households passed the math component of the uh, STAR exam, the State of Texas Assessments of Academic Readiness exam, in 2022. And that's compared to 67% of students from non economically disadvantaged households.
3: So, and that's the majority. Of, so, when we talk about the 65% or so of kids that are growing up in households uh, with uh, lower incomes, mm-hmm. we're saying that only 30% of those kids are being successful at math and uh, in terms of testing. And what does that mean, Layla? When you're not doing well in math, what what does that bode for you in your future, certainly your future academic career uh, in school?
7: Well, I mean, that's a tricky question, of course, Dr. Bob, because, you know, do I use, Uh, geography, I mean, geometry from high school in my day-to-day life? No, I don't. But it does tell us something very important about the standards that are not being met and basic kind of learning development scaffolding that's not happening for poor students. They are not being met where they need to be met um, to be able to have success in the longer term.
0: Yeah, I would also wonder, do you know, Leila, if this is the math component average across all tests, or is it for a certain grade?
5: That
7: is across all grades. Mm. Um, so, yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. so even thinking of, because I, even if you can move on a grade, it just sets them back. And then once you start building, like, come graduation, and this is kind of far out, but now you're taking two or three stars. You're constantly trying to meet the like mark so right so it's more so focus on get these students to the star rather than building essential skills Sometimes, but also
3: if you look at benchmarks right Layla we all we know that uh, how you do in algebra one is going to be a good indicator right. if you graduate and if you go to college and so if if only 30 percent of our kids are doing well at math that means there's probably going to be or 30% of the majority of our kids are low-income kids. Uh, that, that means that those are kids that are unlikely to at least go to college, right? And here we have a state where when we look at the numbers, more of our kids should be going to college than are, right? We have a very low percentage of kids who go to college compared to other states. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is not a good indicator for our future in terms of some of these kids going on to two- or four-year schools.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just in terms of, um, again, learning development, meeting those benchmarks, not falling behind um, to make sure that they're on track to graduate. And then, of course, these students, even if they were meeting their math readiness, um, you know, upon graduation, if they're coming from economically disadvantaged households, they have a whole other beast of a hill to climb to be able to attend college, you know, beginning, of course, with the lack of affordability of college for most students.
0: And Layla, I know you have a point on reading which I want to look at too, because both groups didn't necessarily, like barely got half. So can you give us that statistic?
7: Statistic.: Yeah. So 41 um, percent of economically disadvantaged students — oh... I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> I misread that. Um, so when it comes to reading, 41 um, percent of economically disadvantaged students are passing that. Um, compared to 55% of their non-economically disadvantaged
3: peers. Wow. Wow. And, you know, when we look at these numbers, I think uh, uh, I mentioned this earlier in a, in a meeting at Children's this Week. I mean, we looked at one of the things we saw in New York Times that is a big article about Mississippi, about reading scores and how Mississippi was always last- but they've done this full effort, right, full-on effort to try to get reading scores up, and that makes a big difference. And when we see these numbers, whether it's the number in reading, which is clearly not high enough, or this number in math, which is clearly horrible, you know, we're going to have to have a major effort in this state. And a lot of this we have to understand is from the pandemic But we have to have a major effort in this state to really make sure that we're having much more academic success because it's going to be reflected, right, in graduation rates. Uh, It's going to be Mm -hmm. reflected in rates going to college. And then further down the road, just success, right? Well, it's
0: also, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean – I know they reweigh the star – and they can change how things weigh or change the questions, but more so instead of just expecting everyone to reach this mark, if no one's reaching it, let's go back to square one and see where those gaps What's are. What's going and on, yeah. Right, right. What is this test actually now picking up on and how can we change the system rather than just the the final test or
3: the final score? Yeah, we need to, uh, Rebecca, our producer, needs to get someone from Mississippi. We want to hear what (laughs) what they do. Oh, I would love to wrangle. Yeah, yeah, let's get someone from Mississippi Mississippi here. Layla Mazzali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children's. Risk. Layla, thank you very much for what you and your team are doing.
7: Thank
2: you.
3: All righty. We'll be right back on Growing Up in America. A little bit of Beatles there.
0: I know. Is that your favorite? Well,
3: The Beatles are my favorite. I don't know if that's my favorite <laughs> song. song, but I know you guys do it just for me, right? You're just <laughs> yeah. like, uh, we're like, mm, how about what's the, the old oldest what, what, band we could find? What's the, the, isn't that something? The oldest we're gonna, band we're gonna we are going to get the Andrews Sisters on right? <laughs> <for you. laughs> Glenn Miller uh, let's play some Glenn that's way before my time you know the it's Dean just Martin. but soon? but those of you who aren't here you don't realize you know it, when you're in this studio if you're 30 years old you're old you know it's just <laughs> yeah. uh, I feel like I'm uh, close to old then, at least so on know. this at least on this show yeah uh, so next up we want to talk uh, with uh, uh, our buddy Samuel Kaur he's over at Amerigroup uh, working on Medicaid issues uh, we want to talk a little bit about children with disabilities and how we can work to improve their lives Samuel how you doing man
1: uh, i'm doing all right I, I have to be honest i'm a bit nervous so if i talk too quickly please excuse me for don't, that. don't worry no, we're good.
3: very good at correcting people and you sound <laughs> terrific samuel so you know it's tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing right because it's not often that we'd say oh someone from Amerigroup group is here to help kids out right i mean it's not an average mm-hmm. thing tell us a little bit about what the work that you're doing samuel in terms of helping out kids
1: Absolutely, we, um, and and so just uh, in case your your listeners don't know, um, America Group is we've been serving our state since 1996, so that's more than 27 years, and and we are a health insurance company um, that serve people who are eligible to receive Medicare and Medicaid benefits, and and I think one of the biggest misconceptions about us is that we're just a bunch of business group executives who -hmm. sit behind computers and check off boxes to make sure uh, ID cards are mailed and medical bills are paid. But we actually do a lot to ensure our members and really entire communities all across Texas are really able to improve their health and lives. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, um, I want you to imagine a child. What is it needed for that child to be healthy? Well, we know a child can't be healthy without nutritious food, so we partner with local community gardens and food banks. Uh, additionally, transportation is a huge issue when it comes to access to care, and so we provide transportation to children and their families to visit their health care providers. And, and things like literacy and education, I, I know you mentioned those statistics with uh, Layla, yeah. And those are very important as well. And so we have an amazing relationship with local ISDs, and we do an insane amount of back-to-school events in August. And so um, also something to note, too, um, now that I'm thinking about it, is that mental wellness is also extremely important. So we have uh, virtual telehealth resources available to families that are in mental health shortage areas. And so all of those things revolve around children and kind of really making sure that they live the best health. Uh, best lives
3: possible, and talk about children with disabilities, uh, Samuel. Yeah. How how you know how much of a challenge is that in this state for you guys, and how much are you able to do around that air er- in that area?
1: Yeah, um, so. It- it's an interesting question because there are some moments where we're saying we can do a whole bunch with us, just do everything that we possibly can. And then there's these things where we're talking with ISDs and they're saying, well, we only do certain events here and there. And um, we've been continuously pushing through the year to do more, do more. And so there's been this huge outreach and uh, partnerships with all the various um Nonprofit organizations that focus on disabilities with children. And really, it's working with those organizations and saying, we don't want to, we are experts at what we do, but we don't want to tell you what to do. We want to work with you to create, kind of help fill the gaps that you are seeing in those particular communities. And so we're working with a whole bunch of different organizations, a whole bunch of ISDs, and specifically within that context of children with disabilities. And so we're doing a whole bunch of different things from focusing on uh, creating de escalation spaces in local schools for, Children with ADHD to um, something like fill- figuring out um, an initiative for a disability park. Um, we also look at things a little bit more locally to um, providing opportunities for listening sessions for dis- uh, for children yeah. with disabilities. We had this one instance where we were creating this listening session, and um, a mother who was listening on that listening session with and the panel was uh, children with disabilities. She was turning to one of my my someone on my team and said. Those people, those children are in college, they just got into college. I didn't realize that was my, possible for my child until I actually saw that listening session. And so it was doing those little things that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal yeah. in many cases, but it actually makes this ripple effect of a difference. Good.
0: Yeah, thinking about that holistic approach that you said, and not just mm-hmm. services, but transportation, it's really intentional about those partnerships. How successful or what does that look like from when you started and even from an insurance company perspective of how you can successfully build and grow those collaborations and how it impacts the children?
1: Yeah, uh, th- that's a very interesting question because um uh, and as I mentioned, we're not business executives, but the, I mean we do look at things like KPIs, <laughs> uh, key performance indicators, as well. And so, uh, but in this particular realm, this is kind of one of those areas where we don't really t- look too much at the numbers, and we really focus more so on how strong is our relationship with these organizations, how great are we in terms of reaching out to the communities in need. And so we look at the things, uh, the impact that we are doing from those programs and from those services. So in terms of um, kind of like what is the measure of success in terms of what we're doing, it's more so of how can we create impactful differences within the community? How are we filling in the gaps that these community organizations know they have? We have our community health workers who have identified those gaps. How are we doing um, in terms of filling in those gaps? Very good.
3: Samuel Kaur is uh, the Medicaid Marketing Manager with Amerigroup. Samuel, thank you so much for being on our program today. And uh, please let your team know to keep up the great work. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again on Growing Up in America.
1: Absolutely. And, that, and just a quick note, too. I, I do agree with Claire's note about Beyonce. Yeah. Well.
3: And who doesn't ever agree with Claire? I mean, you're in the right place, Samuel. Thank you so much, I know. Ann. We'll no. get Amerigroup <laughs> to
4: help us. Yeah. Yes.
1: Very Absolutely. Good. Take you. care, guys. All right. Thank Bye. you, Sam along the trail deep in the heart of Texas the rabbits rush around the brush deep in the heart of Texas
3: all right getting back to our uh, topic today on gender affirming care um Wanted to bring in uh, uh, Dr. Angela Giardino, who's a buddy of mine. He's uh, the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Utah, the Spence Fox Eccles School of Medicine, and he's the chief medical officer at uh, the Children's Hospital there, Primary Children's. Uh, Angela, how are you doing, man?
4: I'm doing great, Dr. Bob. How are you? <laughs>
3: Very good. So good to hear from you. Angelo, you and I have talked about this uh, before, about gender-affirming care. And, uh, you know, in Texas, we've had a lot of physicians that have been sort of scared to speak out about this, Dr. Giardino. And uh, I wonder, uh, there's there's so much misinformation. I wonder if you might share with us, you know, what is the percentage of kids that, that come to the hospital with this as their primary presenting thing, and sort of where, where, what happens from there, Angelo?
4: Yeah, so uh, thanks Bob for the question. Um, you know, it, it's a small number of people you know, when you think of a typical children's hospital,
3: Yeah, you know,
4: we see, you know 20, 30, 40,000 patients. Uh, in a given month, depending on the size of the of the facility and the and the um, you know the the network it has, yeah, so yeah. it's a relatively small number of patients, uh, but it's a significant issue or problem. So what happens is, you know, we do the typical thing. It's pediatric care. We take an intake from the family. Uh, we set up an appointment. The adolescent. It's usually an adolescent. The adolescent comes in with their parent or parents. And the first thing, Bob, is we talk to them, yeah. uh, you know, in a very respectful way. We try to figure out what are they grappling with. yeah. And then we do the typical, you know, basic pediatric care. We do a history, we do a physical exam, we might run some labs, some imaging, uh, and then we uh, talk to the family and we decide when's the next time we need to see them. So I want to dispel the myth that we treat this as something other than just a, a, a an issue or a challenge uh, that uh, somebody brings to the physician and they need a sensitive ear and then they need to kind of start thinking about, uh, uh, you know, what are the issues I should be considering? What might some treatments be? What might a treatment plan look like? What are we getting involved in? Uh, typically, uh, in, a, in a center that's like a children's hospital has a comprehensive team. Yeah. So there's probably a pediatrician, a nurse. There's uh, typically a psychologist. Uh, there may be a social worker. Uh, there may be a care manager. Uh, and uh, we just kind of start a dialogue with the adolescent and the parent. And I, I just want to keep reiterating, reiterating that. We in pediatrics almost always have the, the, the kid And the parent in the room, like that's training in pediatrics is that we're always dealing with the parent as well as the kid. So this is definitely a family-centered approach, and we try to figure out what makes sense for this adolescent in this family and how are they making sense of it. And we're there to provide the information that we're aware of, and we view them as a partner in the treatment planning.
3: I think one of the incredible things to me is that gender affirming care, by and large, as I talk to other pediatricians, is counseling, and it's just sort of talking to these kids, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and I think there's one group of people that said that you know it's calling this genital mutilation, when indeed all, all that's happening is counseling. So talk about how do we get from counseling to genital mutilation, Dr. Jeer? do you know?
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's really oversimplifying and just kind of completely kind of going after a talking point. Yeah. So the vast majority of the interaction with the kids that are grappling with gender identity is just like you said, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of assessment. Uh, it's looking at options, and um, it, there's a lot of treatment planning, thinking about what makes sense for you. So the vast majority of folks, uh, we're having conversations, and we're helping them understand the difference between uh, you know, physical sex characteristics, gender identity, sexual orientation. Those are kind of like the, the three domains yeah. that typically kids and families want some information on. There may be a segment, and again, it's not the majority of the kids we talk to, but there are, there are a number, and uh, that then um, they, uh, after the assessment and after we work with them and have a relationship with them, they have a consistent, persistent difference in the identity that they feel connected to versus what their physical characteristics are and that might be when we start talking about uh, hormonal treatment
2: mm-hmm. right and
4: that's that's a segment of those and we talk that through we talk about what we know are the pro and the con what are the implications uh what what are the consequences and then we work with the parents and the adolescent to decide is that the right treatment for you Uh, you know, surgery is like way down the line. And most, most folks would say surgery is, you know, towards when you're 18. Yeah. Um, You know, you need to kind of deal with these issues. And we have to, you know, you need to kind of see what's right for you. But um, surgery is not an early or an, an easy decision to make. And that's way down the line. And that's the, I think one of the, the talking points, but it's one of the mythologies, like, yeah. like as if we go to surgery quickly. That's, that's really a, 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 like a kind of a longer term part of the treatment plan. And most guidelines, you know, as you know, for bottom yeah. surgery is after you're an adult. And for top surgery, you know, that's a that's a very nuanced discussion. And it's a very personal discussion. And that happens way after the treatment plan is going and the person's comfortable with what their identity is.
0: Dr. Giordano we talked a little bit about it earlier, but I'd love to hear your perspective, especially from a different state. But just the fear in general, it's almost the criminalization of the conversation in general. And not only are these trans youth or those um, just in the LGBTQIA plus community fearing from all this and from this conversation and from um, almost the culture being criminalized. How is it in hospitals of trying now to maneuver through obviously not providing the care when it becomes criminalized, unfortunately, but not even those conversations and moreover hearing that they're even encouraging to backtrack on some of these hormones or medications?
4: Thanks, Claire. Uh, you know, I, I think criminalization of healthcare decision making is um, a wrong headed policy approach. Right. Uh, to me, uh, we need to get back to first principles. Uh, we need to honor what healthcare is, which is a relationship between a healthcare provider, you know, a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, and the patient. And, and pediatrics, obviously, the patient and the parents. That's what we should hold sacred. And and although uh, you know, from a policy perspective, it can be very effective to criminalize something because it certainly does shut that behavior down. Um, that I think is the wrong way to deal with. An emerging field of practice and and I, I can't think of many areas where we criminalize the discussions that a physician is having with their patient and i don't think we want to do that so right. i would love for people to pull back from that brink and get back to honoring uh the the interaction between the provider and the patient and in this case the provider the patient and the, and the and the pediatric patient uh, and I would just say, you know, and again, obviously, this is a policy issue. So, you know, I kind of firmly believe in small government, not big government. So I'm not sure we advantage anybody by having the physician, a parent, a pediatric patient, and a legislator or a regulator in the exam room. Right. They yeah. don't add much, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: it's also thinking the psychiatric care that's a part of it and the counseling. It's just stripping Mm -hmm. that away from these youth. They're stripping that access away. It's scary for children.
4: And that's that's a very important element of the care. uh, Because as you know, uh, whenever you're dealing with a a group that is marginalized, uh, they're going to have an emotional response to being treated like that or hearing, uh, you know, in the public square comments about them that demonize them. So they're going to need that trusting relationship with a mental health provider and i don't think we should do anything that keeps somebody's kid from getting care from a behavioral health specialist
2: All right uh,
3: a final question on this before we go to some of our uh, sort of fun questions uh, dr giordino is is that how did we get to this place right i mean uh, and it just seems odd that we're sort of not following our doctor's advice here, but moreover, mm-hmm. that we're picking on pediatricians and and more importantly, that kids, right? That, that these are legislators mm-hmm. picking on kids that are having a rough time of it already. And now we've decided to to make them a part of the cultural wars and go after their doctors. You know, how did we get to this place?
4: You know, I I wish I really understood that in a more detailed way, Bob. But I I know the solution is to pull back from the polarizing language and to make an effort to get along, to seek to understand, Mm -hmm. to be respectful, to be considerate, um, to think about what you're saying and what the implication might be. To the people that you're uh, potentially demonizing, that's going to be the answer: is to go back to our values, and our values should be that we're respectful, and that we may do, be, you know, we may disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. And that's what I'm hoping, and, and I have a lot of confidence in the American political system. And I think over time, the overreach and demonizing people will be seen as brutal, and will pull back, and we'll start to be respectful. And that's what I want to see.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I think good information, correct information, like we're getting from you, Angelo, is important, right? Because there's so much misinformation, Claire, right, on yeah. this issue. Yeah, there I is. mean, just to the point where I, I will have lunch with people that are smart people, yet they don't know what's going on. And I yeah. think part of that is pediatricians trying to be respectful of their patients. But the fact of the matter is we need to hear the information right, I think. So thank you very and much. Could I offer, Bob, sure, sure.
4: evidence emerges and changes and morphs? So, you know, there was a famous economist that said, as I learn the facts, I change my mind. Mm-hmm. So, I'm open I'm an open I'm open. I'm open to hearing emerging evidence and maybe changing what we do uh, over time because that's what we do in healthcare. But I'm not going to accurately I'm not going to agree to uh, to misrepresent what I know right now and maybe 3 years from now it might be a little bit more developed, but right now we have people that need help and I'm willing to help them.
3: Very good. Yeah. Let's ask uh, Dr. Giordino one or two sort of fun questions, Claire. So Dr. Giordino, when you were a little kid, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have like a little play stethoscope that you would wear around and say, I want to be a doctor? Where were you as a kid?
4: Yeah, you know, Bob, uh, you know, I, I, I can't <laughs> say I really thought about being a physician until like I was, you know, like way into high school. So, um, I think I, I just kind of knew that in America, because I came from an immigrant family, yeah. I knew that if you went to college, you got treated differently. So mm-hmm. I was pretty sure I wanted to be a professional. I just didn't know which one. And I was for the most for most of my youth, I was thinking I was going to be a pharmacist. A pharmacist.
0: Hmm. Wow. I I like that's close. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, my favorite question in the movie of your life, what actor is going to play you?
4: Well, you know, Claire, I got asked this question about 12 years ago. And it's still the same answer. It's Al Pacino. That's so good. <laughs> was that the
3: last time you were on growing up in America, Angelo? It was 12 years ago? Something like that, Bob. I think so you know, You're
4: not inviting me anymore.
3: <laughs> I'll put well, you on the list. Don't well, worry. We're going to get you on the list. And the final thing, your favorite food when you were a kid
4: growing up, Angelo? Oh, my favorite food growing up was pizza yeah such a good to one me like angelo of course it was
3: <laughs> dr yeah. angelo giardino he's the head of pediatrics at the university of uh, utah and he's also the chief medical officer of primary children's in salt lake city dr giardino thank you very much for being on growing up in america
4: thanks dr bob and thanks Claire. all right
3: take care we'll talk to you soon
4: uh
3: and uh Claire, concludes- very good. A lot of good information here today, I right? Know. The show has been jam-packed uh, because you're such a great host. I think that's yeah. what, why people are just. Uh, <laughs> <blocking> <laughs> I haven't to even be told
0: here. all of my fans, Happy Pride Month.
3: Happy Pride Month. Yeah. Absolutely. Very good. So, for all of us here growing up in America, here on KPFT, thanks uh, so much for tuning into the show. Uh, Claire and I and the whole team at Children's Risk do this each and every day for, for children. children. See you next time.
2: With a dream, my
7: cardigan Welcome to the land of Frame excess. am I gonna
4: Luba Dvorak, singer-songwriter here in Houston, Texas. You're listening to KPFT Houston.
3: I'm going blind from the brake lights on the L.A. freeway tonight. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure
1: he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at nhtsa.gov/the right seat. Show them.